Well, I have noticed something just in the last couple of, well, really the last week or so. Uh, there are some signs that something's coming. You look outside in your backyard and uh, you probably see some leaves that have already come down and are laying on the ground. You get up early in the morning and you go outside and it's 50 degrees outside before it turns 85 in the afternoon. You go into stores and the shorts are on clearance and now there's gloves and scarves and mittens. I went into one store that had Christmas stuff out, which is just, I don't know how you guys feel. I know there's weirdos in here that start celebrating Christmas like right after July 4th. Thanksgiving, that's the, that's the date. Once Thanksgiving comes and goes, then we can celebrate Christmas. But you even see Christmas stuff in stores. I know that there's, there's stores that play Christmas music this early. All of these things are signs that point to what's coming. What's coming? Winter. Snow and ice and freezing temperatures. But every single year, you don't have to wonder if winter's coming because you start to see the signs. You know, I see these things. I see what's going on outside. I see what's going for sale in the stores. I know winter is coming. There are signs of what lies ahead. As we jump back into the book of Matthew today, we're in Matthew chapter 24, and we've got a lot to cover this morning. And actually, I thought about just skipping over this, because uh, this isn't really a, an easy passage. Uh, I think there's a lot of really good things, though, in this passage that apply to us today, that we need to know today, and that we need uh, to understand. But Jesus now is meeting again with his disciples, and he is showing them and giving them a preview of coming attractions. He's giving them the signs to look for that will usher in the day of the Lord. And there's a few different things that are going on here in this passage, all right? We've skipped over chapter 23. Last time I preached, we were in chapter 22. We've skipped over 23, where Jesus has had a major uh, confrontation again with the Pharisees. Uh, these last chapters that we've been in, we talked about the fact that this is the uh, what's known as Passion Week. This is the last week before the crucifixion, and it's all about confrontation. You see Jesus and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law going at it time and time again. It's about core truth. If you remember a couple weeks ago, Jesus boiled down the entire Old Testament to love God and love people. He wanted to make sure that his disciples got what they needed, understood what they needed, had what would equip them for the birthing and the growth of the early church. And then we talked, too, about the fact that in this week, Jesus went out of his way to give revelation to give revelation of who he was, he talked very freely and very openly, no longer using uh, veiled language about what was coming, about his death and his resurrection and what would be won and what would be gained through that. But then you also have this passage where he's revealing to them uh, signs of the ends of the time. But there's a little bit more that's going on too. He's also giving them something to look for in the coming days. And I think it's interesting when you start in chapter 24, Verse 1 is always, uh, it's been interesting to me. Listen, 24-1. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. And this is, this is how I picture it. Have you ever been to New York City? How many here have been to New York City? All right. The rest you need to go just once. I'd never want to live there, but it's a nice place to visit at least once. But if you go to New York City, and maybe this is you, maybe you fall into this category, but you see tourists everywhere. And you see tourists that are grabbing the arms of the person next to them. And look, look, look at that. Do you see that building? Do you see this? Do you see that? That's kind of what I picture here as they leave the temple. 
The disciples grabbing Jesus' arm and turning and saying, look, do you see the temple? What we can't understand today was the importance of the temple in Jewish culture. The temple was the symbol of their relationship with God, their special relationship with God. The temple was uh, the manifest presence of God among them. The temple was the center of Jewish life, the center of Jewish culture. And there's scholars that think, based on some of the other context clues, that this would have been right around the time of day where the sun would have been shining straight down onto this temple. And the picture, the view, would have been spectacular. The temple that Jesus is talking about here is actually the third temple that's been built on that site. This was built by King Herod. King Herod is known as a builder. During his time, he built hundreds and hundreds of different buildings, and he spared no expense. This temple would have been marble. This temple would have had, uh, been gilded in gold all around. It would have been marvelous to behold. And again, as the disciples turned Jesus' temple to that, or attention to that temple, saying, look, look at that building. And the sun hit it. All would have been right in their world because this was the symbol of their relationship with God. This was a symbol of the Jews' place in the world. And as they point to the splendor of that building, this building that for them represents relationship, Jesus gives them this grave announcement in verse 2 do you see all these things he asks I tell you the truth not one stone here will be left on another everyone will be thrown down talk about throwing water on their fire Jesus, do you see that? Do you see the beauty of that building? This building that represents our relationship with God. And Jesus' response is not, oh, it's, yeah, it's beautiful. His response is, yeah, well, real soon, that's not going to be there anymore. And really, if you look at it, it's, it's an incredible sentence that he gives because it also shows the change in relationship. They're not going to need that temple anymore. They don't need that place where God's Spirit can dwell because soon, because of what Jesus was going to accomplish, God's Spirit would dwell inside each of them. They would each become the temple of the living God. And as we get further into the passage, Jesus goes a little bit further down the road. We're told that he goes up to the Mount of Olives. When I had the opportunity to visit Israel, we went up the Mount of Olives and it overlooks the Temple Mount. And so as he told them it'd be torn apart, he takes them up a little further to a place where they can get a great view, a great vista of the temple below them. And the disciples wait for a quiet moment. And they ask Jesus two things. And as we get into this passage, I think it's essential for translation, it's essential for understanding the passage to know that there are two different questions being answered throughout this passage. There's two things that Jesus is hitting on. And in some cases, it's very clear which answer goes with which question. In other cases, the answers are kind of woven together and taken together, and it can be a little more difficult to understand what it is that Jesus was teaching the disciples. But as we look at a little background before we get into the content, these are the two things that we have to understand. First, like I said, he's answering two questions. Verse 3 says this. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, 
when will this happen? All right, there's the first question. When will this happen? Speaking directly to what Jesus said about the temple. So the first question they want to know, when is the temple going to be destroyed? And then they say, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So again, you have two distinct questions here. When is the temple going to be destroyed? And how will we know when you are about to come back? How will we know that you're about to return? How will we know that the end of the age is being ushered in? And so you have to understand, again, there's two questions that are being answered. The second thing you have to understand about this passage is the intent of Jesus. The intent. As we look at his response, you have to understand this is not an end times timeline or timetable like you get in the book of Revelation, like God would give to John just a few years later. Jesus' intent and his purpose here is not to illuminate the minds of the disciples so that they would understand everything that was coming. They may have expected him to get him in a little huddle and say, okay, here's, here's the deal. The temple's going to be destroyed on this day, and then you have to do this, 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 and this, and then I'm going to come back on this day. But that's not what Jesus does. In fact, he tells them later in verse 36 that even he doesn't know the time. He doesn't know the day or hour. So even if he wanted to lay out the specifics, he couldn't. He had a different reason for answering these questions the way that he did. And there were three parts. First, he wanted to warn of events that would happen soon. So there is an aspect to this prophecy that is not immediate, but pretty close. And what you're going to see is there's a reason that the Christians, those who would follow Christ after his death and resurrection, needed to be warned about the event that was coming. And so his intent was first to warn of events that would happen soon. The second reason, or the second intent, was to prepare them for action. In the very near future, there was going to come something where they would have to act. And he wanted them to be ready. And then finally, <clears throat> and this I think is the intent for us as well as we look at this passage. He wanted to stir up expectation. He wanted the disciples to be eagerly awaiting, eagerly expecting the end, eagerly expecting the return. The same thing that he wants from us today. And there's always, throughout Scripture and throughout the history of Christianity, there has always been a tension between the imminence of Christ's return, meaning he could come at any moment, at any time, and the delay of that return, as God waits for more and more to have the opportunity to bow the knee to Jesus Christ, to bow the knee to God the Father and come into a relationship with him through Christ. No one knows the day or hour, but we know it's coming. And it'll come as God ordains it. It'll come in the fullness of time, as Scripture says. And God wants to make sure that his disciples stay watchful. He wants to make sure that his disciples stay expecting with eagerness that day. Years ago, I don't remember how many years ago now, right before the, uh, the first movie in the new Star Wars trilogy came out, Episode One. I remember going to the movies and I'm sitting in the theater maybe a month or so before that movie came out. And you have that moment where the lights all go down and the screen goes dark for a second. If you're visiting, I'm a huge Star Wars nerd, just so you know. 
All right, I get a little excited about Star Wars. But I remember sitting there, and then all of a sudden, you heard that trumpet fanfare, and the words started scrolling up the screen, and it was a preview for the Star Wars movie that was coming. And I was, I almost cried. I'm not going to lie. I got goosebumps. Little did I know it was going to be one of the worst movies ever made, but that's beside the point. But I got so excited. It wasn't the real movie. It was just a little snippet, and honestly, it was meant to draw more questions. It was meant to leave you wanting more. It was meant to leave you wanting the real thing. That's what Jesus is doing here in this passage. He's giving them a taste. He's giving them a preview so they will eagerly expect the day of the Lord. They'll eagerly expect the day when Jesus returns. And he ends the passage, which we'll look at in a little bit here briefly, with a story of two servants. The master's away, and they don't know when he's going to come back. And he contrasts these two. One servant serves diligently, and he eagerly expects the master's return at any moment. The other thinks because the master is gone, he can do whatever he pleases. And we're told the master returns when he's least expected, and the good servant, the one who stayed watchful, is rewarded, and the other is punished. One of the intents of this passage is Jesus wants his disciples then. He wants his disciples now to be expectantly waiting for his return. That's a huge motivation behind how he answered these questions. All right. So as we get into the text, this is less of a, of a revelation account. And it's more of a call to watchfulness. It's more of a call to preparation, a call to readiness. Let's look at the different aspects of his answer. The first thing that he addresses is the near future. He addresses an event that is going to happen in the lifetime of these disciples. And while the idea of the destruction of the temple, as we've mentioned already, is woven throughout this passage, verses 15 through 22 speak specifically of the destruction that's coming, of what's going to happen in the near future. Jump ahead with me to verse 15. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of his house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world, until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would have survived. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. And so we have this, this prophecy. It's not a fun prophecy to read. And I would imagine as the disciples are hearing this, there's not a great deal of excitement. Jesus is saying, look, something's coming, the likes of which... You have never experienced the likes of which no one has ever experienced. And you got to remember, the Jewish people have been through uh, the enslavement in Egypt. They've been through the exile. They have been subject to evil people and evil kings and evil countries for most of their history. And Jesus is saying, that's ah, not over. There's something coming, something that's worse. Jesus is predicting a time of distress and pain. 
And he says, the destruction is going to be so terrible that if God didn't provide some mercy, no one would have survived. But for the sake of the elect, for the sake of his plan, for the sake of the church, he will not bring about the complete destruction of Israel. There'll be some that remain. There'll be some that cling to God. There'll be some that heed this warning and understand what's coming. And when they see the signs, they go and they flee to safety. And it's during this time that the temple will be destroyed, as Jesus said, to the point where there will not be one stone left on another. The fulfillment of this prophecy happened just about 40-some years after Jesus prophesied. And I've told you before, I love biblical prophecy. And one of the reasons I love biblical prophecy is because it's not this general, vague, this might happen. And you, there's like 8 million things that could happen that would fulfill that. When Scripture prophesies, it is specific. And Jesus says, look, this is going to happen to the extent that the entire temple is going to be completely wiped out. You're not going to have walls still standing. You're not going to have any hint that a temple stood on this ground. And just a short time later, in the year A.D. 70, the Roman army, under the command of Titus, came in and leveled the city of Jerusalem. The historian Josephus he records the destruction of the temple was so complete that a passerby would not have supposed that the place had ever been inhabited. The fulfillment of what Jesus said. He also describes this time as a time of famine so severe that parents turned upon their own children for food. Thousands of Jews were crucified by the Romans. Over a million were killed by every sort of brutality imagined. And hundreds of thousands were sold into slavery. But listen, Josephus also records something that I think is pretty interesting about the attack. Josephus says that most of the Christians had already fled the city and escaped into the mountain city of Pella and were spared the horror of the attack. These events are not stand-on-your-own events. Jesus says, this is coming, be ready, and when you see the signs, get out. And Christians fled. And why is that important? Because the vast majority of those who claimed Christ as their Savior at that point were still right there. And if Rome had come in and just simply wiped them all out, the church would have been done right there in that moment. Would have never had the chance to grow and to flourish and to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. God provided for his children. And now, if you jump down to verse 34, it says, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And this is where it can start to get confusing for some people. If you don't understand that there's two distinct questions that were asked, you can look at this and say, well, that's not true. Jesus didn't return and the disciples have all passed away. But again, you have him answering that first question about the destruction of the temple, which will happen before the generation passes away, which is exactly what took place. So he mentions the near future. He also talks about the beginning of the end. He gives the disciples a list of general things that need to take place that will usher in the second coming of Jesus Christ, that will usher in when Christ returns for his bride, when we're caught up in the air with Jesus. 
to begin our eternity. Listen as I read verses 4 through 13. Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation. Kingdom will rise against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to, the perse- to be persecuted and put to death. You will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. He tells us to look for certain things. That these are the beginnings of birth pains. Those of you who have ever been through the delivery of a baby or watched the delivery of a baby, you know that birth pains are unmistakable. Birth pains aren't something that you just would miss. When birth pains come, there's nothing, they consume you. Again, I'm assuming, never having gone through them, but I watched. Jesus is saying, When you see these things, they won't be, oh, maybe this is maybe. No, they will be unmistakable for what they are. But what's the end result of those birth pains? My wife, most days, would tell you that that birth pain was worth the four beautiful children that we had. Most days. But the end result is something beautiful. And that's why I think Jesus used the analogy of a birth pain. Because these things are going to happen. They're going to seem terrible. And I know from watching, again, watching my wife, there's that point where I think every woman is like, I can't do this anymore. And in the next moment, they're holding a beautiful child. Jesus is saying, this is going to seem terrible. This is gonna, and it's going to be terrible. It's going to hurt. There's going to be pain. But the end result is that the kingdom of God will be ushered in for all eternity. The end result will be heaven. The end result will be no more tears, no more pain. But these things must happen. These are the things that he describes. And I think more than any time in history, I think you see these things happening. The first is that many will be deceived. Many will be deceived. As you read anything in the news today, as you watch what's going on, not just in our nation, but across the world, it is evident that people are being deceived. It is evident that people no longer see the truth, know the truth, care about the truth. We live in an unprecedented age where Christianity is more and more being viewed with hostility, while things like humanism and naturalism and atheism, any anti-God, any anti-Christian stance is lauded and embraced. Even within the church, even within Christianity, you have messages that are being proclaimed that are not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, in the last days, many will come and claim to be able to offer what only God can give. Many will come and claim to be able to offer what only Jesus can provide. A way to heaven, a pathway to peace. 
And many people will fall for it. Many hearts will turn away. A couple other places in the New Testament, it talks about this time. 1 John 2.18, it says, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. That's how we know it is the last hour. The Antichrist, those who preach a message, many, in many cases, very, very close to what the Bible teaches, but with the express purpose of turning people's hearts away from God. 2 Timothy 4 says, The time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. The time has come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desire, they gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. This is what we see happening. And again, it's not just in the world at large. It is in the church. We've gathered around us people who will preach a message of health and prosperity and give us a warm, fuzzy feeling, but it's ultimately something that won't save us. In a survey that was done probably about 20 years ago now, these are interviews with people from mainline evangelical churches, people that would say they believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and they would say they preach the gospel. That survey found that almost 60% of people didn't believe in Satan. 51 believed that if you pray to dead saints, you'll get your prayers heard faster. 35% believe that we can communicate with the dead. 50% believe that salvation must be earned. 50% believe that salvation must be those poor people. 75% believe that we are born neither good or evil, but we choose as we mature. 44% believe the Bible, the Quran, and the Book of Mormon are all different expressions of the same truth. The Bible very clearly teaches the opposite of each and every one of those things. And yet because there are things that are taught within Scripture that are hard to hear, and they're hard to understand, and they're hard to live out, we would rather try to make our own interpretations and make the Bible and make God fit into our parameters rather than ordering our life around the truth of Scripture. Many will be deceived. It says there will be wars and rumors of wars. Just look at news headlines today. Famines and earthquakes. There's countries now without food. There's tsunamis. There's earthquakes leveling cities. There's hurricanes destroying lives. Christ said these things would come. Persecution. Chick-fil-A is boycotted because of the owner's belief in the sanctity of marriage. I believe a time is coming where, as a pastor, I will not have the legal right to refuse to do a wedding that doesn't align with the beliefs of Scripture. There is persecution happening. There is persecution coming. And biblical beliefs are being attacked in a way that I don't believe we've ever seen before. Jesus also says that because of the birth pains, many are going to turn away. We see again, we see that happening today. We see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people leaving, heading out the doors of the church. Jesus says in verse 33 that when we see these signs, the end is at the door. But in verse 14, we have what I think is one of the most important verses in all of Scripture that I think can be overlooked. Sometimes Jesus says, here's, here's the birth pains. And we can't do anything to control any of these things that are happening around us today. But there's one singular event that happens over time, 
But one thing that has to be fulfilled before Jesus will return. One thing that Scripture says, this must happen. And again, it's very specific. It's nothing vague about it. This must happen. And then the end will come. And in Matthew 24, 14, you read this gospel of the kingdom. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. Shall be preached in the whole world for a testimony unto all the nations. And then the end will come. And then the end will come. Jesus says that while all these other things are signs that point to the coming end of the age, it is the gospel being taken to the ends of the earth that will usher in that day. Why do we do missions? Why do we have people that are willing to leave the comforts of their home and go to the ends of the earth to take the gospel to people that need to hear? Because short of that, Jesus isn't going to come back. Until every tribe, every tongue, every nation has had an opportunity to hear that there is a God that loves them. There is a God that created them in his image. And there's a Savior that took upon himself their sin, their penalty, their death. Until every nation has heard the good news of the gospel, the end will be delayed. I'm going to jump ahead a little here. We're going to get to the, the fourth thing that he talks about. He talks about the timing of that day. He talks about the timing of the second coming. So he's answering that second question now of the disciples. I want to run through these rather quickly. You, you can't cover the entirety of the doctrine of the second coming here in in five minutes and so i want to give you just some bullet points and and i'm going to tell you if you can hear these things about the return of the lord jesus christ for his church for his bride for those that have accepted christ as their savior and you don't get a little bit excited something's wrong with you all right you need to check your pulse listen to this The first thing that Jesus tells us about his second coming is that it is imminent. You've heard me use that word already. It's imminent, meaning it can happen and will happen at any time. There isn't a time to, and this is why I always say, look, if you hear a spiritual leader say Jesus is coming on January 8th at 7 o'clock, I guarantee you Jesus is not coming on that day at that time. Because the Bible says nobody knows. Nobody knows the day or hour, not even the sun. But the return is imminent. Jesus says in verse 36 and, and then verse 42, No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the sun, but only the Father. And verse 42, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Jesus will return for his bride. And we can see the signs all around us, but we don't know the exact day. God alone knows the day. And I'll tell you, that day is not changing. That day is written in stone, and all of history is moving, is hurtling towards it. But what does that mean for us? That means that we need to be the servants that are keeping watch. We need to be the servants that are doing the things we know our master wants to until that day when our master returns. We need to be the ones that continue to serve, continue to love, continue to teach until the day Christ comes back. His return is imminent. Could be today. Wouldn't that be lovely? Could be today. It could be next week. It could be next month. It could be 50 years from now. 
But will you be ready? Will you be prepared? The second thing he teaches about the second coming is that it will be immediate. It will be immediate. He talks about uh, false prophets. He talks about false antichrists that will come claiming to be the second coming of Jesus Christ. But you will be able to watch them grow. You'll be able to watch them grow into the role, their, their deceptive role. Jesus says when he comes for the second time, it's going to be immediate. It's going to be like lightning. Matthew 24 27, for his lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. And then verse 40, two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken, and the other will be left. His coming will be quick, his coming will be visible. And finally, his coming will be incredible. Verse 30 and 31, at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. Then they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet to call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. The day is coming when you will hear that trumpet sound. That day is coming where we will be gathered up where the church will meet Jesus, where we begin our eternity. It's imminent, it's immediate, and it's going to be incredible. I want to close with this, all right? This probably should have been a series in its own right, this chapter. But what does this mean for us today? What is it that I want you to take away from this message. And I would encourage you to go back and read chapter 24 uh, again on your own. But I believe with all my heart, the first thing that we need to understand is we are living in the last days. I believe that. I believe that the return of Jesus Christ is soon. We need to take away from this that his physical return, the day that Jesus will return for his church, is imminent and live that way. And then we need to understand that while we can't control any of those birth pains, we do have a role to play in bringing about that day as we take the gospel to where it's never been heard. We have a role to pray for our missionaries that are actively doing this. We have a role to give towards our missionaries so the Bible can continue to go out and the gospel can continue to spread. And for some, you have a role to go and to actively take part, getting your feet on the ground and spreading the good news of the gospel. In this chapter, Christ gives us a sneak peek at what's coming. He gives us a sign, he gives us a preview of coming attractions. It ought to get us excited. It ought to have us on the edge of our seats because the real show is about to begin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the things that you teach us through Scripture. I thank you, Lord, that you give us signs, you give us prophecies, you give us things to look for and things to wait for. And Lord, I thank you that at the end of all of these birth pains, at the end of the deception that we see around us, at the end of all of the brokenness and all of the hurt, at the end of all that, 
we will see you face to face. At the end of that is glory. At the end of that is you. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to live with an expectation of your return. I pray, Lord, that that would give us a sense of urgency, understanding that we're in the last days, that we would go out from here with an urgency to take your love and to take your word to spread the good news of the gospel to those that need to hear it. Lord, give us opportunity. And Lord, I pray that you would do that work of preparing people's hearts. And as we've prayed so many times here before, we pray that you would give us a harvest in this place that we would reach those that don't yet know you. In Christ's name, amen.